0: Hey, this is Harriet, and I'm so excited to bring you this conversation I had with Kristen Leach of Namu Farm. Based in Winters, California, Kristen is a Korean-American farmer and seed saver. She grows Korean and East Asian produce using traditional natural farming methods. I first heard of Kristen from an article on Civil Eats, which is an online news and commentary site about the U.S. food system. This article featured a program called Nonghar, which she organized with community activist Yongchan Miller. The program connects the Korean diaspora in the U.S. to Korean history and the contemporary food justice movement, which I think speaks to the kind of work that Kristen does generally. When talking about the theme of up and the systems and forces that allow us to enjoy it, I'm... Sure, the connection to farming and farmers is obvious or self-explanatory. Kristen and Namu Farm in particular came up early for us in the curation process, given the ways she infuses community care, global and Korean socio-political history, and so much more into her farming practice, which I think you'll hear in this conversation. And with that said, this conversation was recorded in Toronto, which is the traditional territories of the Haudenosaunee Confederacy, the Wendat and the Mississaugas of the Credit First Nation. Kristen spoke with me from Winters, California, which is the home of Padman people. To start, can you tell us what a day on your farm looks like right now? Sure. I mean, it pretty much gets
1: started when the sun comes up. <clears throat> and I'll head out to the farm. I live about 10 minutes driving distance from where I lease land, and um, yeah, at this time of year, just going, opening up the greenhouse, um, making sure all the seedlings in there have water, uh, just generally kind of checking on things, walking around all the different plots that we manage, and then um, yeah, right now, springtime, it's predominantly planting seeds either directly in the field or in the greenhouse and then transplanting uh, seedlings from the greenhouse to the field, um, laying out irrigation. That's pretty much it for right now. This is kind of the busiest time of year in a certain way. Like I think people think of harvest season as um, kind of prime time on the farm, but this is Really, kind of the biggest push in terms of just the physical demand, and also just um, uh, maybe the kind of mental load of everything, and kind of where you need to really be deliberate about your your stamina, just because everything's starting to get going, and it there's just so much work and care on the front end of getting you know these plants prepared and strong enough to um, yeah to actually get into harvest season so that's what we're doing right now
0: in winters california what kind of climate are you working within
1: yeah uh well we're in the central valley and so we have that kind of typical hot dry uh Mm -hmm. mediterranean season um this year we're in i think it's the third driest year in california history and so typically in my town um we get between 16 and 18 inches of rain uh, each year. And this year we've gotten um, a little under six and a half inches. And so, you know, we're already in an area where it's great for a lot of things. And, you know, we're in a really robust agricultural area. Like our town produces most of the walnuts um, and a lot of almonds that get exported all around the world. Uh, we've historically been like um, a big canning tomato region, and so um, Campbell's had their cannery here, and so, yeah, long history of tomatoes, wheat and sunflower, and then a lot of seeds, actually. So most of the sort of big uh, seed corporations have campuses and fields here where they do a lot of their breeding and trials, and um, just because it's such a great seed climate because it's the one thing that kind of dry heat is good for is we can grow, you know, practically any type of crop and we have that long summer uh, to dry down seed and let them kind of dry down and mature in the field. And so, uh, yeah, basically it just feels like you're in a pretty dry sauna all summer long. And then the winter, you know, we get a, a fairly modest amount of rain.
0: I've heard you reference in other podcasts and interviews times where and when you've learned something new, the ways you've adapted those lessons, or what you've kept the same. It was in a different context, but recently I heard someone describe this sort of thing as a show-your-work citation process. I don't know if you'd agree with this, but it feels very appropriate to apply to your work and the way that you work. It's as much as you being generous with sharing your knowledge and your process as it is you acknowledging the lineage about where your farming practices come from, and not just in terms of cultural or ancestral lineage. I also heard you mention some of the elders that you work with and the relationships that you've developed with them, and specifically in relation to the legacy that comes with seed saving. I'm wondering if you could tell us a little bit about your seed-saving process. How does that play a part in your mission to grow ethically, or how it might be a response to the climate crisis?
1: Um, okay, I'll try to, yeah, think about the different things that you just asked. Um, yeah, I mean, I think saving seeds is is obviously just a really integral part of what we've what we should all be thinking about uh, in terms of just strategies to to just purely survive those kind of ongoing climate catastrophes, and um, and so I just think <clears throat> it's not to be underestimated the value of you know these different plants that we've we've cared for and that we've grown with, sometimes over these long expanses of history. Like so many of our domesticated crops have been tended to for for centuries, and with each passing year for an annual plant, it's like, it's learning, and it's remembering, and it's kind of cataloging all of this information, um, and so, you know, to kind of keep growing it year to year, as opposed to these strategies that, you know, have mostly gone around collecting germplasm and seeds from all around the world to kind of bury it under a glacier as the sort of notion of a doomsday vault, um, you know it's that idea of xc2 which is that idea like small it's taking seeds kind of out of context to safeguard them um but you know we're part of kind of a seed community and this movement of people that really want to convey the importance of that in situ like seeds staying in context seeds growing from year to year so that they can learn and they can adapt and be reflexive um and not only that they should be grown from year to year, just so that they can continue to see the type of stressors that different communities are dealing with, um, but also that they should be held in like a cultural context. You know, they should always be balanced with this sense of history, just so that, you know, where we at least can acknowledge like what blind spots we have, because if you look at the sort of biodiversity that's been created on this planet, so much of it is about the coevolution of people and their respective plant communities and so each decision that people made in terms of just you know starting to set up these sort of permanent agriculture systems and different more um you know stationary societies and civilizations is really just based on this feedback loop of of noticing interesting things and interesting mutations or evolutions that a plant uh was participating in as it grew and and then saving seeds from that because it was desirable to us in some way right and so like you can think about yeah different like wild forms of teosinte becoming domesticated so many multitudes of different kinds of corn uh different kernel sizes and levels of you know different enzymes that make it glutinous or not so you have this wonderful expanse of genetics and that's really tied to the sort of ingenuity of humans and the things we, you know, created in terms of like culinary and medicinal uh, legacies. It has to do with the places that we inhabit and how we kind of grow in those places together. So climatic events, you know, are, are super severe now and it's really, you know, we're at this real flash point where our species survival is really kind of questionable given the state of the world and how we've participated in it. But certainly, like these big changes, if we look back at um, the history of this planet, you know, all these plant communities and lots of different species of life have witnessed so many different uh, iterations of the world that we live in. And so, I think, yeah, that ability to be adaptive and be smart is something that we can really learn from seeds. Um, and so all the work that I've tried to do is partially, you know, fueled by just personal interest as a Korean American and wanting to connect more deeply with my community, wanting to really learn and understand my heritage more. Um, and, but that's, you know, it's really equally part of, you know, a sense of my also being kind of an outsider to that community because I didn't grow up in a Korean family I didn't really grow up with a lot of Korean customs or even Korean food. And so as a farmer, you know, when I started growing these crops, I had a lot of farm experience. I had worked for a lot of other people. I was pretty confident in my sort of capabilities as a grower. But when it came down to it, like I would grow these Korean crops and having never eaten them sometimes before I actually grew them. I had no frame of reference, but I did realize that decisions that I would make as a farmer in terms of like, uh, of what plants look like, what they taste like, what, you know, what are the things that someone who grew up with these crops will feel nostalgic for? Or what will be the thing that when they taste it can transport them to, you know, like all these rich stories and memories of their family and their community? And so I felt like uh, a lot of my process was just fueled by that sense of responsibility and accountability to just say, like, I love these plants for who they are. I love them because I get to see them grow and I've become so close to them in my tending to them. But I also want to balance that by bringing these crops to these different functions and having them be with, you know, people that really appreciate them that have that kind of really deeply ingrained visceral sense of, um, you know, their grandma feeding it to them and their mom cooking it for them or watching it grow in different people's gardens throughout their childhood. Um, and I think that that just, yeah, it just feels very important. It feels like a very missing piece of just even the organic seed world that we're a part of. Like it, that tends to be really kind of Eurocentric in terms of who stewards those seeds and whose narratives really dominate the kind of framework of biodiversity and even just you see that within organic and ecological agriculture, right? They're thought of as these kind of novel ideas that were introduced by white people in the U.S. like, you know, sometime in the 60s or so, uh, when really that's, those are concepts and systems that have been cared for and innovated within by predominantly peasants around the whole world. Um, So those are kind of the legacies that we wanted to really think about and hold at this really kind of particular unique moment in time and with a seed the beautiful thing is that it's not like other objects that we receive as heirlooms right they are living beings and so it's a, it's just a really unique position to be in to tend to history by also thinking about evolving something for the future and that this little seed in your hand like you would be doing a disservice to it to just try to only reproduce history because we are facing these sort of unprecedented problems. And so as we kind of grow these different crops, like for where I am, obviously my main stressors are heat and drought. Um, And so all of the crops that I grow on my farm, like I'm trying to see like, how can we be intentional enough in our growing and seed saving practices so that all of the plants that grow here feel a little better equipped to deal with those stresses. Um, and so we could talk about that later, like participatory breeding, um, but it's just kind of this unique thing of, of holding and feeling that sort of infinite loop of being here in the present, being responsible to the past, and also being you know, imaginative and brave and creative and thinking about the future.
0: One thing that stands out to me about your work, out of many things, is how expansive your relationship is with your crops. I mean that physically as the person growing them, but I also mean that in the ways in which you situate yourself as a Korean farmer, growing Korean crops in particular in the U.S. with an understanding of the bigger context of history, geography, politics, science, And in a place like the U.S. with its 100 plus years of Korean migration, there is this rich history of people bringing their Korean dishes and their memories associated with them from cooking meals at home to starting up restaurants and so much more. And I think that is a narrative and experience that I think a lot of people are familiar with and can relate to. Uh, But I do think that there is this disconnect or gap between the history of that culinary work and the history of farming Korean crops on Turtle Island slash North America. Although that's not to say Koreans don't have a long relationship in regards to farming on this land because I know in the U.S. some of the earliest folks to come were and worked as farmers. But it does feel like we are now collectively at this juncture where things feel like they're shifting and we are bridging that gap, at least uh, in a more general way or in the public eye, between growing Korean crops in North America and connecting that with our diasporic experiences of Korean food, politics, and history, and in a way that feels more transparent. And it seems like you are a part of this movement to to bridge that gap and so I was wondering if you could tell us a bit about your journey and learning about the Korean historical and socio-political context and how that relates to your farming.
1: Uh, Yeah I mean I think that for me you know a lot of my you know adolescence was spent in these spaces like around New York where I grew up like in community gardens and art spaces and in this conversation within New York about just the role of those community spaces the disappearance of them because of the neighborhoods where I was spending this time or you know rapidly gentrifying through the 90s and that a lot of the communities that were in these places like in these gardens were also displaced from these other ancestral lands so you know metal a lot of adults that were coming from Chiapas and places that were, you know, in a real kind of moment of upheaval at that time, like around Zapatistas and organizing against, you know, different types of trade liberalization that the U.S. is involved in. Um, So at a pretty impressionable time, like I was just really fortunate enough to be in these communities, having these conversations about, uh, yeah, the U.S.'s role in these global affairs and, just really how it affected uh, land-based people, you know, who tends to most of um, our communities in terms of growing food, who owns land, like these types of questions. uh, Yeah, about the sort of landless workers, different peasant movement organizing. um, Yeah, it made a very big impact um, just on my mindset and in just thinking about, the role of of place and how it shapes us. I, you know, obviously have my own experience being born in Korea and then adopted to the US. And so I think that question of uh, migration and especially just sort of like forced migration has just always been kind of a curious one and that became really conflated with um, Yeah, kind of peasant led movement building And that in turn, you know, I think I've been really politicized around those things. And then, you know, in, I think, 2002 in Cancun at the World Trade Organization's ministerial, uh, a Korean farmer took his own life to protest the WTO and to just draw attention to the fact that, you know, those types of multinational agencies and the type of uh, trade deals that we saw happening in so many parts of the world, like were things that just decimated regional food systems. They just really destroyed food self-sufficiency for these countries and it really uh, left nothing for peasants in terms of like them having a livelihood, small scale farmers, everything became bent on this sort of like, you know, other consolidated narrative. Um, and I think just all through growing up, like I always sort of kept an ear out for things that were about Korea, you know, like when I was, I think, like six or so, the Olympics happened in Korea. And it was just one of those things, like as a kid, it's like, oh, I just felt so proud because I never really heard anything about Korea, or I felt like no one I grew up with uh, knew anything about Korea or even knew where Korea was on a map. Um, so all those things that just started percolating through, like I would just kind of capture and hold it in my head. Like I think when I was a child, like, oh, I want to have a Hyundai when I grow up. And I don't think a lot of kids think like, wow, when I grow up, I get to drive a Hyundai, you know, but it was just the one Korean car company that I knew. Um, And so I think it just was fitting, like I was becoming very politicized and learning all these things and hearing about the experiences of like these different parts of the world. And then, you know, that farmer's sacrifice made me think like, wow, this affects, um, you know, this affects people in this place where I was born, too, and and the Korean peasant movement was so strong and gaining steam all through the 90s. Um, and so, I just felt kind of proud in that regard, just saying, like, wow, like, we're just tied to all of these other kind of amazing movements. Uh, and also, just sad to know that the kind of exponential growth experience in Korea was tied to something that really disenfranchised huge portions of their population, Uh, in service to, you know, something that at that point I felt highly critical of. Um, And so, yeah, my introduction to a lot of that was, you know, through this experience of being an outsider, being part of the diaspora, um, and, but being very critical, like, with, from living within the U.S., being super critical of, like, the U.S. as, like, this kind of militaristic and imperialist Uh, endeavor around the globe so those were the kind of things that um, yeah had really shaped a lot of my perspective and my way of just relating to and understanding uh, you know Korea from the 80s to present day Um, and certainly those are things that became really important in choosing like the way that I farmed the seeds that I wanted to grow Uh, all of that is still informed by that critique of of imperialism, I guess, basically.
0: So then would you say from the birth of Namu Farm, working with the Korean diaspora, farming as a form of liberation and organizing with the community towards food justice has formed the basis of your work?
1: Yeah, definitely. I mean, I just... um, i becoming a farmer, wanting to learn how to work on farms. I mean, I turned 38 this year and I realized like, oh, that means half of my life has been working on farms because I started working on farms when I was 19. Um, And all of that just felt like, you know, first kind of just like being outside, friends had farms, friends worked on farms was very curious about learning and just had the opportunity to. Um, And then at a certain point, just realized like, this is just really important. It's really necessary. And this is the one thing that I can do with like, you know, just my capabilities to ensure that like my family, my community will always be okay. So it was really kind of, um, I guess, initially, like my ideas around farming was, built around a notion of self-reliance and I think the beautiful thing has been like the more that I learned from my experiences as a farmer the more I came to see like that the strategy is you know more interdependence if anything you know like starting out like you know I want to make sure the people around me are going to be okay I can feed my community that regardless of what happens like if you can grow your own food you know like you're going to survive um And then just realizing like all this much more complicated web of relationships and reciprocity and all of these types of agreements and commitments you make to, you know, these plants, the places where you're all growing, the people that you're feeding, like all of those things are actually a lot more dynamic than I think I had initially started out as. And I think that's been one of the most, uh, you know, profound reverberating lessons to learn is, you know, starting off with that sort of you know that self-reliance narrative a lot of it is like really informed by just fear and scarcity um and yeah spending enough time like really connecting to land and being humble enough to really listen like you get to learn something so completely different from that and I think that 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 different cosmology has been the most valuable thing like more than just like the food and the calories and even some of the stories and things like I just think when you get to really live within a totally different story than the one that is so kind of pervasive in this type of Western culture was such a good release. And so I think that's been the most valuable thing is um, the farm functions as a place where those conversations can happen. And I just see more and more like just how important that is, like compared to like what a maybe more like younger activist self would think is the thing that kind of, is transformative or what we need to transform society. Like just being on this deeply personal level, starting to unravel like just our intrinsic belief and like our right to dominate any other type of life, Uh, you know, just being kind of wrong. And yeah, just how deeply humbling it is to try to grow and care for these plants, balance the needs of an ecosystem, see things be really emergent and more dynamic, the more kind of actors that participate and the more kind of robust forms of life that are fostered, and it doesn't mean everything always goes your way, and in fact, you know, many times it doesn't. But you're just balancing it against the needs of of how a place is going to be the most okay uh, for the most amount of you know species that depend on it. Um, and so you just yeah are just constantly thinking about those things. And in a drought year like this, it's really handy to just have that reframe and. It's worse for me as a farmer who is farming as my livelihood because that balancing of needs means sometimes, yeah, like that doesn't always work out great for like a small business, right? Like we had the super dry winter. So we abandoned like our winter and spring plantings because we just couldn't justify budgeting, like pulling water out of our water table that early in the year or to get us through the winter when usually all we're doing is replenishing that aquifer And so it's just those things where it's like you take a pretty big hit financially to do something like that, but you're just thinking about um, overall how to kind of just participate in, yeah, getting through this all together with that sense of just sort of solidarity with all the other beings that rely on, you know, the place where my farm is to to survive.
0: Especially as you were describing that i think about how you move through this nexus of food and community i know that the agriculture and business side of it is very much at the center of what you do as someone whose livelihood is farming but i do get the sense that it is more than just the crops that you put in to the soil it's also about the ways that your work brings in and highlights that growing food is something we do with people we care about and in spaces that we're invested in. And that is not at just at any given point in time. It is also about how that care and investment changes with the changing needs of the communities and ecosystems around you. So given the time that we're in, I would be remiss if I didn't ask you how you are feeling during COVID, um, especially as in-person community elements have changed so much, has farming in terms of solidarity and justice work, does that look different in this moment?
1: Uh, it does. I mean, because I leased uh, my farmland and my landlords live on the property, their family lives in town too, um, they have grandkids, like, just felt especially cautious, um, just being you know essentially on their land, having a lot of shared infrastructure, um, and so yeah, usually we host a ton of events and farm tours. Like it's really kind of like an active um, you know sort of social calendar through the whole season. And all of that was canceled. I mean, obviously, a lot of the groups that do host tours uh, also canceled their in-person programming, um, but. I mean, we also, I did still have volunteers on the farm just because, you know, um, murder and I had a baby last June. And so just needed, you know, like when we were planning this and thinking ahead of when our daughter was going to be born, just realized like I'm going to actually need some help on the farm because usually I just work out there alone. Um, And so a handful of people did stay on and we just came up with the type of protocols we needed, but it was, It was great to still be able to have some people out there, especially just because with the new baby, it was just jarring to be so isolated. Um, Like my parents are flying in from New York this weekend, but it's the first time they've met her. Um, And yeah, just the inability for people to just like come, kind of just like normal rites of passage in terms of becoming parents, like just didn't happen. Um, so it was really nice to at least still have our community here in summer regards and people were so generous with bringing food and things like that. Um, and then the other thing is, you know, we started a CSA program, like most other small farms to do vegetable boxes for families, but because of the seed saving, like some of the practical things with, when you're saving seeds, like you grow a lot larger populations than you would for, um, just pure fresh market production, just because you're kind of yeah trying to always get the cream of the crop each time and so you want to grow uh you know for example like the with our uh, perilla the kidney if we grow you know plant 2000 seeds we end up putting you know about a thousand plants into the field and then from those thousand plants we end up saving about a hundred plants to take seed from and we harvest several pounds of seed from that um, but if you think about that, kind of each stage gets a little smaller than the one that came before. You're trying to narrow down in terms of just getting, like, the most vigorous seeds from the most vigorous population of plants. And so you just end up growing at a scale that's very different than just for fresh vegetables. So a CSA isn't a great model for me because people typically want their box to have, you know, upwards of a dozen different vegetables. Um, and for those vegetables to change out really rapidly, and so my farm, it's like we try to put as minimal successions of plants in. We try to disturb the ground as little as possible, and we're growing again like a little bit less diversity, but we're growing a lot more volume of that diversity just for the sake of the seed. Um, so we tried to tailor a CSA box to that, and also to just meet like the moment in terms of I think. I don't know what it's like for you, where you live, but the Bay Area, you know, it's like this sort of real tech hub and things like just from having so many friends in the hospitality industry, you know, things were going in this particular direction where people, you know, weren't going to a restaurant for the experience of being with their friends and enjoying like a thoughtfully created meal. People more and more just kind of wanted food to be delivered to their house at all times of day and night. Um, and I think COVID kind of like put a hard stop to that or it made us question or lament the fact that now we couldn't actually go and gather. And I think in some ways the silver lining is I just feel like people recognized what we stood to lose in terms of, yeah, there's a culture to gathering, right? And there's a reason to kind of go out uh, and going to a restaurant being a special thing instead of just about pure convenience. And I think the same thing kind of applies to, you know, CSA boxes and kind of vegetable home delivery. You know, we're going in this direction where people wanted just that maximum convenience. And it's like, I understand it. People are super busy, you know, like preparing a home-cooked meal is hard, let alone like, yeah, completely from scratch. It's super intimidating. Um, But I do think, you know, a small farm like me, on the other hand, I can't compete with like, we've got tons of, you know, distributors that can run logistics on something like a CSA in a way that a farm can't. So a CSA used to be like, oh, you build a really distinct relationship with your farmer. You kind of get whatever is in season and you're helping subsidize some of the risk. So if something doesn't work out, I can always fill your CSA box with something else. And you're just kind of signing on more to support the farmer because you want this relationship. And now it's kind of like you can order a box that's aggregating from 40 different farms. You can cherry pick exactly what you do and what you don't want in each box. And that box could be delivered to your doorstep at any at any time. Um, and so for the most part, a lot of small farms stopped doing CSAs because we're being outcompeted by, yeah, these bigger companies that had the refined backend to do that type of logistics management. Um, So again, it was like sitting with this, sitting with the landscape of the business side of this for small farms, knowing that every farm was really turning to this direct-to-consumer model and saying like, okay, well, if I want this CSA to be something that's not just getting me through this kind of heinous year of COVID, uh, in the long run, what would be the most inspiring thing to create, so we made a CSA program called Seed Stewards that, yeah, was going to be tailored to our production. So each month of the season, we had a theme and we would highlight a certain crop. So it would be like cucurbits, and that includes cucumbers and melons and summer squash. Um, and then things that are more specific, like a box olive perilla, and you see genip, and you see shiso and Tiato, all the different varieties to understand, you know, even something that seems like, oh, this kind of, you know, unique specialty crop there's actually a ton of diversity within that as well. Um, And then there's educational curriculum and virtual potlucks. Um, And it was really heartening to see because my worry was like a lot of these families that are participating, all of them have kids between the ages of like four and, um, you know, into teenagehood. Um, So they're all doing virtual learning and a lot of the parents are working from home or dealing with being underemployed. So it's like it's such a stressful year for all of us. You know, is having this kind of nerdy curriculum, is this kind of educational component going to work? And also, we're giving these boxes that have just a lot of a lot of produce and a lot of volume of produce because we wanted people to share recipes and do these community interviews and learn to use things um, by experimenting with them and trying to develop feedback on noticing the differences between like, yeah, two different kinds of summer squash um, learning about different species of things. So to me, I was like, this is a little more work than a a CSA box. But I feel like because it did connect this community to one another, people really embraced it. And so it was like, oh, instead of focusing on just like, yeah, pure convenience, we're saying worried only about scrambling to get things on the plate. You also could set aside, you know, one night or a couple nights a week to just actually have an experience that will help curate so we'll give you prompts we'll give handouts like we made coloring books for each crop like let's help infuse like dinner time conversation with like all of these questions and probes and and let food be the conduit to talking about all these other things so kind of saying like you know instead of just pure efficiency let's let's think about fostering kind of like the quality of how we spend that time. So it's like, sure, you're going to spend more time to cook a meal from our box, but that time is going to feel like, you know, some of the more nourishing time you could spend, you know, during your week. And so those were the things that were really great to see in terms of just what, just kind of the violence and all the horrors that came up during last year, just the bright side being like what people wanted to kind of like assert, what they wanted to see and what they wanted to build um, in light of all of that.
0: I feel like that speaks to our theme of cheap up a bit, which I know as a Korean word has a specific Korean sensibility, but we were intentional about using the Korean term instead of the English translation or even something more general like, Korean food systems, for example. Uh, Aside from the fact that we are a magazine buy-in for Korean women, we also wanted to use the Korean term because I think there is something about the Korean food experience and something about chip-up that embodies a type of sharing quality. I don't know how many of your CSA members are Korean, but again, I was reminded of that aspect of the theme as you were talking about how these folks have been able to connect with each other in this way, via this avenue, um, especially in the midst of the difficulties and the pains of the last year. Those are all the questions I have, and that also seems like a hopeful ending note. Just for fun, I would love to wrap up with some rapid-fire questions. The first one is, do you have a favorite vegetable to grow?
1: Uh, It would be too hard to choose, but I'd say, yeah, kingnip and chame and uh, soybeans.
0: Are they also your favorite to cook with?
1: Uh, Yeah, I think so.
0: And do you have a favorite Korean dish?
1: Favorite Korean dish? Oh, I mean, because I love the perilla so much, I really just like eating Kindit Chungaji with um, plain rice and maybe some soybeans in there. Uh, I just, yeah, I think that's the most delicious.
0: It was wonderful to speak with Kristen and to learn more about her and the lessons that have informed her farming practices and principles. It feels like a bit of a full circle moment after first learning about her work almost four years ago and admiring her work from afar over the years and now having the opportunity to speak with her in depth. The last note I would like to end on is her mentioning of not knowing exactly the taste of certain Korean crops when she was starting out. I think about the kind of trust her communities place in her food-growing practices, and also the kind of trust she places in her community to tell her what they need, what they want, what reminds them of home and of family. So if you're interested in learning more about Kristen's work and her journey, you can check her out on Instagram at Namu Farm and on her website, secondgenerationseeds.com. We will be sure to link everything in the show notes. Lastly, a shout out and a word of thanks to our friends at Giant Doma for supporting us again with audio editing.